Before I begin today, I do want to mention something. Um, I just want to thank our men who just do a wonderful job of keeping our property nice on the outside. Inside as well, but outside, uh, you guys did a great job this week. Really looks, looks good out there. We thank you for that. I just want to give you some kudos today for, uh, for doing that. I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, please, to Matthew chapter 9. And when you found that passage, if you'd also turn to the book of Mark chapter 2. And as we did last week, we're going to look at both Matthew and Mark so that we get all the details of the story that we want to talk about today. And this is really a great story. It's a very dynamic one. It's a story that you need to get into your mind. It's one of my favorites that we have in the Bible. It's a story about faith. It's a story about concern for people who need the Savior. And most importantly, it's a story about forgiveness. Jesus Christ has the power to forgive sins. And that is the greatest need that every person has, to have your sins forgiven. And if you look at our key verse, before we read, it's in verse number 6 of Matthew 9. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. If you're looking for the greatest benefit of Christianity, this is it, that sins are forgiven by Christ. There's no other religion in the world that deals with this. There's no other religion in the world that has an atonement. There's no other religion that provides the way that we can escape the wrath of God because of our sins. The ability to forgive sin rests solely in the power of Jesus Christ and his authority. And that's what this story is about. It's a declaration of the deity of Christ and about his power to forgive sins. If Jesus can forgive sins, then he must be God because only God can forgive our sins. Now, if you'll look with me, please, and stand at uh, uh, Matthew chapter 9. Stand as we read today. We'll start in Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse number 1. And he entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go into thine house. And he arose and departed to his house. But when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men." Now, we go over to Mark chapter 2, and Mark fills us in with some more details about this story. And in verse number 1, we'll repeat some of the things that we've just read with some more details. And again, he entered into Capernaum, and after some days, and it was, uh, after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house. And straightway, many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they came unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. 
When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why did this man speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee? Or to say, Arise, and take up thy bed, and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed, and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion." Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and I ask you, Lord, to open up our hearts today as we look into this portion of Scripture and help us to understand the magnificence of Jesus Christ in being able to forgive sins. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. We notice from reading in the Gospel of Mark that this story took place in Capernaum. Capernaum was like a home base for Jesus in his Galilean ministry. He didn't stay in Nazareth, the place that he had grown up. They'd already thrown him out of there. He wasn't welcome. His hometown didn't want him. And so Jesus made Capernaum his home base. Capernaum is on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, and it was on a trade route, which made it very convenient so that Jesus could reach other parts of Galilee. This is where Peter lived. This is where uh, Peter had his business of fishing, and it's likely that when Jesus was in Capernaum, what he would do is he would go to Peter's house, and there he would stay. And there are many people that believe that the story that we're reading about today took place in Peter's house, that it was his house that they went upon the roof, and they tore it up in order to let this man down to see Jesus. And it's his house where all the crowds were gathered, where they were standing around, listening to Jesus, spilling out into the street, just just a huge crowd that had gathered there to hear Jesus teach and to heal. The story is about a man that was paralyzed. The Bible says that the man had palsy, and that is the same as paralysis. And from reading the Scriptures, it appears that he was totally paralyzed, so that he was unable at all to get to Jesus. Now, in the last message, we started by looking at the activity of his friends. There were four friends that were very concerned about this man, and they were a determined group. When they came to the house, they they saw that there were many people that were packed inside. People were backed up to the door. The crowd was spilling out, and they were all there straining to hear Jesus, to get a glimpse of him, and to see him as he taught and he healed. And so these four men came carrying this man on his bed, which was sort of like a stretcher. And they, when they arrived there, the crowds were already there. It was impossible for them to get in to see Jesus. There was just too many people. And it was the habit of Jesus never to turn anyone away. And so you can imagine with all the sickness and the disease that was in, in Galilee, that people came to see Jesus to be healed. And before he was done, Jesus had nearly eradicated disease in in all of Israel because he had healed so many people. But what do you do when you can't get there? What do you do when when you're paralyzed like this man and the only hope that you have to get to Jesus is to have somebody take you there? 
What if after so many years of hopelessness that, that you could ever get rid of a disease, that finally you have your chance? Here is somebody that can help you, but you just can't get there. There are just too many people. So what are you going to do? Well, thank the Lord this man had some determined friends. They were very determined, and they weren't going to give up. They were innovative. They were good thinkers. They weren't concerned about buildings. They were concerned about this man. And so they got there, and they took him up on the roof. The only way that they could get in, they tore up the roof on the house, and then they let that man down into the center of that house where Jesus was so he could heal them. Now, folks, that is determination. And that's the kind of determination that we need to get people to Jesus. The only hope that your friends and family have to be forgiven of their sins, the only hope that they'll be able to go to heaven is that somebody tells them about Jesus. And so what you need to do is to do everything that you can. Don't make excuses. Don't give up on them. Pray. Tell them about Christ because if you don't do it, then it's likely that no one will ever give them the gospel of Jesus. So the activity of these men, we looked at that and we saw how outstanding that it was. Uh, They had a friend that was in need and they just stayed with it until that need was met. And so they got him there and their faith was rewarded. Jesus saw their faith and he rewarded that faith. He also dealt with the paralyzed man's faith, but he recognized what these four friends had done in bringing their friend... And so Jesus rewarded that faith. And that's something we also need to remember. That if you have true care and concern for your family members, for your friends, and people that you work with, if you'll just give them the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you are determined to do that, then God can reward your faith. So now they have this man in the presence of Jesus. And when everything was settled down and the man is on the floor in front of him, Jesus watched him coming down from the ceiling inch by inch, and now he's in his presence, and Jesus responded to it. Next we see the announcement of Jesus. In verse number 2, Jesus said to the man, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. And you'll notice he didn't immediately say, Get up and walk. Just get up and walk and leave the house. Oh, the first order of business was for Jesus to deal with his sins. The first order was forgiveness of the man's sins because that's what he needed the most. And if you want to get down to the root cause of why this man was actually there, the root cause is his sin, the sorrow that he had over his sin. And you might say, well, how do we know that? I mean, the Scripture doesn't tell us about this man being sorry about his sins. How do we we know that he's so concerned about that? What did Jesus do, or what what did he mean when he perceived his sorrow, and he said, Son, be of good cheer? Well, you have to know the background. You have to know the way that these people thought about sickness. Now, if you'll turn over to the Gospel of John for just a moment in chapter 9, we'll find here the prevailing thought about sickness, especially these kinds of sicknesses. When you talk about leprosy and and blindness and paralysis, uh, sicknesses that were truly debilitating. And in John chapter 9, we have the story of a man that's born blind. And this is a great story with many theological implications. But I just want to draw out for you today what people really thought about sickness. And we find it here in a question that the disciples asked. In verse number 1 of John 9, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin? 
this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Now here we see that the assumption of the disciples is that if this man was born blind, then somewhere in the equation we should be able to find a great sin. Either this man's parents has committed a great sin, or this man has, has committed some sin, and that's the reason that he's born blind. Now, that second reason might seem a little bit convoluted to us because we know that you can't sin until after you're born. So how could you have sinned and then be born blind? Think about that because I'm not going to answer that question today. Don't spend much time on it right now, but I don't want to deal with that. I just want you to see here that they believe that the cause of sin or the sickness is the sin. So... If you have a disease, if you're crippled, if you're paralyzed, if you have a sickness like blindness, then sin has to be in this equation somewhere. So this man is not, man's thinking is not really any different than the other people. This is their thought. This, this is what they believe. That if you're going to get rid of sickness, then you also have to get rid of sin. And so Jesus began to deal with the man's sin first, and then they would begin to understand how he, or begin with that, forgiving that sin, and they would be able to understand how these two things are connected. So Jesus knew that that was their thought. The sadness was in him, and that's the reason that he needs to be cheered up. It's because of sin. And so when that man was lowered into the room, he knew that all eyes would be on him. He knew that everything, everyone that was watching him would be thinking the same thing. I wonder what great sin has occurred? What did this man do that he was paralyzed? Why is he stricken with paralysis? And friends, do you know that's what most people in the world are missing? They miss the understanding that this man had. Not that he was a sinner because he was sick, but just simply this, that he was a sinner. And most people really don't get that far. They do not recognize the fact that they're sinners. They feel good about themselves. They, they may think that everything is fine. But the Bible teaches us that this is, a central, this is a central core issue for every one of us here. All of us are sinners. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. But people don't think they're sinners. And so... They don't want to come to Christ. They don't need to be brought to him. They're not really sinners, or at least they don't think that they're bad enough that they actually have to be forgiven by God. But this man knew that he was helpless. Whatever the cause of the sin, it was there. It, 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 whatever the sickness, whatever it was, the sin is there. And he fought through this, this fear that he had of admitting that to Jesus and admitting it before the whole crowd that was there that day. Jesus knew what he thought. And so he said, Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee. And you know, this is exactly what you need to do. You need to admit your sins. You need to confess that you are a sinner. You have to acknowledge that helplessness. And the Bible says you must repent of that sin and ask Christ to save you. And so if you want his help, if you want to go to heaven, if you want that as your home, you have to have the same sorrow over sin and the same admission that your sins need to be forgiven. And when it comes with that admission, when you will do this, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. 
And just like he never refused anybody that was sick, he is never going to refuse any sinner that comes to him asking for forgiveness. Now, thirdly, we notice the accusation of the scribes. In verse number 3, And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. Now, it seems everywhere that Jesus went, there were always these skeptical religious leaders that are scattered throughout the crowd. They were always there to judge what he was doing. And that's because the more popular that he became, the less stature that they had in the people's eyes. And so if Jesus is right, then it must mean that the teachings of the scribes and Pharisees were wrong. And you remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, they noticed this difference between Jesus and the scribes. So they said, he teaches like one who has authority, not as the scribes, not as, the, not as those people in the synagogues. He teaches as somebody with authority. And so the scribes were always there. They were always disputing what he was doing in his ministry and trying to tear it apart. Mark gets down to the root of the matter, and he explains why that they said Jesus was a blasphemer. And in verses 6 and 7 of Mark 2, but there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why did this man speak, why did this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And that's really the point of the whole exercise. Nobody can forgive sins but God. And so if Jesus forgives sins, then who is he? Well, he must be God. And I want you to understand how important that perception is. Because there are many people who say, well, the Bible doesn't actually say that Jesus is God. Where do we find Jesus saying, I am God? Jehovah Witnesses deny that Jesus is Christ, the Christ that he's equal to Jehovah God which is the same as saying that he's equal with God the Father. And they'll say that he is a God and that he is some sort of a God. He's like a God. And so you find that in their perverted translation of Scripture. In in their statement of John 1.1, let me read to you their perverted translation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And so they translate it to say that Jesus is not the God. He's not the supreme ruler of heaven and earth. Now, the scribes knew exactly what to make of Jesus' statement. If he says that he can forgive sins, they thought, then he's making the claim that he's God. Not that he is a God. Not that he's some sort of God. Well, these people are monotheistic. They believe in only one God. And so they knew that if Jesus says, I can forgive sins, if he claimed to do it, then he's saying, I am the only true God. Now, you need to understand the exclusivity of that statement because it rules out any other way that sins can be forgiven. It rules out any other way that people can go to heaven. It rules out many different paths to eternal life. And it makes Jesus either God or a very serious liar. And you can't get by with that argument. Well, Jesus was a great moral teacher, and we'll give him that. He was a good moral teacher. But he has to be a liar if he's not God, because good moral teachers don't lie. And Jesus claimed to be God. So he can't be what the Jehovah Witnesses say, and he can't be what the Mormons claim or what the Muslims claim. He's more than a God. He's more than the brother of Satan. He's more than a good prophet. He's Jehovah God, who is the ruler of heaven and earth. And aren't we reminded of Matthew's purpose in this gospel account? He's showing us, 
He's proving in all ways that Jesus is the righteous king who's going to come and rule this world with a rod of iron. And he will do it because he's God. And so the scribes perceived well the importance of his statement, thy sins be forgiven thee. If he does this, and if he can do this, then he must be the one true living God. Now, fourth, we look at the awareness of Jesus. And I hope that you're taking some notes with these words on your listening sheet because they're not going to mean anything to you later unless you know what the activities are and what the announcement is and what the accusation was and what the awareness is. What was Jesus aware of? He was aware of their thoughts. Verse 4, And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? They hadn't said a word, but Jesus knew their thoughts. Now, you see, when you read this stuff and you, and you know all these things that Jesus did, when he did things like this, he knew their thoughts. It makes you wonder, why, why did they continue to reject him? Why do they keep on rejecting him? You wonder, how, how do they miss this time after time after time? And they are so stubborn to admit that Jesus is truly God. But he knew their thoughts. And he knew the thoughts of the paralyzed man. He knew what they were thinking. He, he knew what, it, what, what, what they had in their, their minds because he is omniscient God. And he knows everything that every person has ever thought. So why did they reject him? Well, they did because their eyes had been blinded by Satan. You remember in another time that Jesus said, You are of your father the devil, and you're going to do the works of your father. He read their minds many times. He knew their thoughts. Before they could ever speak or ever open their mouths, Jesus knew what was in their heart. Evil was there. And I, may I submit to you that it makes no difference how secret that you think your sins are, that Jesus knows all of them. You know, some people think that they are really clever if they can hide something from the preacher. Christians many times are big pretenders and they think that they've gotten away with something because the preacher doesn't know about it. Who am I? I mean, what difference does it make if you hide something from me? Good for you. Well, shame on you if you do, but God knows your heart. God knows what you think. He knows all the excuses that you make. He knows what you're doing. You know, we had a discussion in our forum class some time ago about um, where the Bible says that there were people that believed in Christ when in reality they had no evidence at all of their belief. Many people claim to be believers, but they weren't really believers. For example, we look over in in, uh, John chapter 12, and there it talks about the religious leaders in that chapter, and it says that some believed on him, but they wouldn't confess him. They were afraid that they were going to be thrown out of the synagogues, and so they wouldn't confess that Jesus was Christ. And the Bible says they loved the praises of men more than the praises of God. And you know what Jesus said about that kind of unbelief? If you just turn over a page or two there to Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. He tells us what he thinks of that. He says, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. And I think that's extremely important for us. Hebrews says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in you lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And so if you're a person who constantly denies God by your lifestyle, and if there is no consistency there and you continue to think evil thoughts and you continue to do evil from your heart, 
then you need to take heed because the Bible calls it unbelief. And people that are in unbelief do not have their sins forgiven. Now, fifthly, we notice the argument of Jesus. Now, take my advice. You, you don't want to get into a theological argument with Jesus. Folks are always arguing about Jesus. And they try to make him into something that he isn't. They try to make him do things that he would never do and think thoughts that he would never think. And the scribes were no match for him because every time that they challenged him, they ended up whimpering off like a soaked dog with his tail between his legs. You just don't argue with Jesus. Now, now what is the argument that Jesus presents? Verse 4, And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether it's easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk. Jesus is a master of logic. What did they think? Well, the prevailing opinion of the scribes, the Pharisees, the paralyzed man, the disciples, the whole bunch of them thought the same thing, that sin is always connected with sickness. These two things are inseparable. And so thus that question we have in John 9, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Sin and sickness go together. That's a tenet of their religion. That's what they think. And so if you can get rid of sickness, then you must get rid of sin. And if you get rid of sin, then you must also get rid of sickness. So Jesus lays out a logical trap for them. And he says, which of these is easier? To say, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and walk? Which is easier for a man to do? To say that your sins are forgiven, or to heal your disease? The answer to the question is, neither is easier Because both of those are impossible for men. Only God can do this. Somehow ignorant people knew more than the learned scribes and Pharisees because the the blind man over in in chapter 9, he used some godly logic when he said to the leaders, nobody in the history of the world has ever heard of somebody that can heal somebody that's born blind. Sinners don't heal sinners. And so therefore this man must be of God. Now, if you look at it in another way, which is easier to say, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and walk? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven than it is to command a paralyzed person to to get up and walk, and then for that person to do it, to get up and walk out of there. And what I'd like to see is somebody step into a confessional booth, and the priest says, your sins are forgiven and compare that to somebody rolling up in a wheelchair, getting into the booth and saying, Father, heal me. Well, the priest can say that your sins are forgiven all day long, but how do you know that? How do you know your sins are actually forgiven? Well, he doesn't have any way to demonstrate it. Now, if some guy rolls up in a wheelchair, and he rides away on a skateboard, then you got something there, don't you? I mean, there's a big difference. Something's happened. So you get the point? Anybody can say your sins are forgiven. I can do that, but I can't heal you. And I have news for some people. The priest that's sitting in the booth can't do either. He can't forgive sins, and he can't heal anybody because only God can do such things. And that's the point of the miracle. Only God does these things. And so if you want to be forgiven of your sins, you don't go to a priest to be forgiven. You go directly to the Lord Jesus Christ and you confess your sins to him and then you'll be forgiven. Now, here's the the bad thing about it. If you go into a priest and you step into his confessional booth 
When you walk out of there, you're going to have more sins than you went in with. You know why? Because you went in there thinking that men can forgive sins and only God can do it. And to God, that's blasphemy. Only God forgives sins. Only God does it. Now, how do I know this? Well, next we see the arising of the man, his arising. And the scribes thought correctly, who can forgive sins but God alone? And they were dead right on that assumption. Now, watch what Jesus says because he gives this response. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. And he arose and departed to his house. And so now the connection is made. If sin is the cause of sickness, if you can get rid of the sin, then you can get rid of the sickness. And so when he says, Arise, take up your bed, that's far more than physical healing. It's a demonstration of the forgiveness of sins. And so the man got up and he walked out of there. So they're wrong in the application that they make. If a person is paralyzed, if he's born blind, does that mean that that person is a greater sinner than you or me and we're not sick? Well, of course not. Does it mean that if you get sick this week that it's the direct consequence of a sin that you committed last week? No. They're wrong in that assumption, but they were right about this. All sickness is related to sin. Sickness and disease came into the world because of Adam's sin, and if we were all perfect people, then none of us would be sinners and none of us would be sick. That's true. And it's also true that only God can forgive sins. Now, as we look at what Matthew is really trying to do in the Scriptures, what is the greatest truth that he's trying to show us? Well, we notice the statement that Jesus makes that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And this is what Matthew's trying to prove. That in Christ's kingdom, sins will be forgiven. And sin is going to be gone from the earth. In one way or the other, sin is going to be gone. God is going to get rid of it, and there are two ways that he's going to do it. Sinners will be gone from the earth in one of two ways. Either, number one, they are going to believe in Jesus Christ and be forgiven of their sins and have their sins cleansed in Christ's blood. That's the first way. And the second way is they remain in their unbelief, and then God removes them and casts them into the fires of hell. And so either one way or the other, the state of God's kingdom is going to be one of righteousness with no sin. Now, lastly, we would note the amazement of the crowd. Verse 7, And he arose and departed to his house. But when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. You know, I can see this in my in my mind's eye, the difference that just a few minutes of time makes. Four men arrive on this scene with a stretcher. And on the bed is a man who can't move. They couldn't get in. They couldn't force their way in. They couldn't get in through the crowd. And so they go up on the roof and they tear it apart. And they let this guy down with ropes until he's right in the thick of it all. He's right there at the feet of Jesus. Now, the commotion of that roof being torn up, the sawdust and the thatch that are, that are falling down on the floor, all the pieces of the roof, that must have stopped everything for just a few minutes. And all eyes are watching as this man comes down, and people are wondering, what's Jesus going to do? What is he going to do? And who knows, the man, as he's being let down, he may have been trembling. 
what if Jesus doesn't like this? What, what if he's angry because of the interruption? And what if instead of healing him, that he makes things worse? So that he's no longer paralyzed, but now he's in such great pain that he wishes he was paralyzed. Now, if he perceives that Jesus is able to heal him and he really believes that, then he also knows that Jesus has the power to make it worse. And so is Jesus going to be upset about it? And everything stops for that few minutes until that bed is let down. So all eyes are on Jesus. Everybody's staring at him inside and outside. People are trying to see what's going to happen. And then Jesus forgives the man's sins, and he shows that they're forgiven by telling the man to get up and walk out. And so the man does. He picks up his bed, and he throws it on his back, and he parts that crowd, the one that's pushing and shoving, and they, and they wouldn't let him into the house. But when he starts to leave, I can imagine this happened, that that crowd just started to part as he walked through the midst of them. And they stand there in amazement, in amazement so that he parts the crowd like Charlton Heston parting the Red Sea. He takes that bedroll, he's got it on his back, strolls out of the house and heads for home. Sin's forgiven and his disease is gone. And Matthew says the crowd marveled at this. Mark says that they were amazed. And then Luke actually added something else to it. Luke says, and they were all amazed and they glorified God. And listen, and they were filled with fear, saying, we have seen strange things today. They're filled with fear. And you know why? Same reaction as when he stilled the storm that was on the sea. Same reaction when he cast the devils out of those two men. They were filled with fear because they understood that they were in the presence of God. And you know what happens in the Old Testament when people came face to face with the presence of God? They feared, they bowed, they trembled. It was frightening to them to be in the presence of such power. See, there's something missing if we're not truly fearful to be in God's presence. Now, there's all in respect for God. We do understand that, and that's the reaction many times. But there's also this terror of fear that we find in Scripture. And you wonder, why is it that people don't fear when they step into a place like this? Why isn't there that reverence and that awe for where we are and that we are truly in the presence of God? And I think it's because we don't really understand who God is. And you can go into many churches and they have their made-up worship. And they practice all these different things that they do and they think that that's worshiping God, but really they don't have any respect for God because what they're doing is satisfying their own senses. Worship is for them first, not for God. But fear is the place where worship begins. Fear is the place where we begin to glorify God. And fear is actually the reason why we need to be forgiven of our sins. You know, I think R.C. Sproul said it best. He said, what do you need to be saved from? And most people answer the question, I need to be saved from hell. I've got to escape the fires of hell. That's what I need to be saved from. And R.C. Sproul said, no, you need to be saved from God. That sounds strange, doesn't it? But he's right about it. You need to be saved from God. And that's because God has wrath over sin. Your greatest need is to be forgiven of your sin because God's wrath is on you when you aren't forgiven. John wrote, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. 
Paul wrote, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And then again he said in Colossians chapter 3, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh upon the children of disobedience. Now in the beginning of the message, I said all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so because of sin, the wrath of God is on the children of disobedience. But what we see in the story is that we don't want to end there. We don't want to end with the wrath of God. You need to be saved from the wrath of God, and there's a way that you can be saved from God's wrath. And it's by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. Sins can be forgiven in Christ's blood. Colossians says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And that's what Jesus came into the world to do. He came to supply the greatest need that man has, and that's to be forgiven of sin. We are dead in trespasses and sin. We're helpless. We can't walk. We can't get to Jesus. And he has the power to forgive those sins. And when you trust in him, He'll always say to you, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. And then the next thing he tells you to do is to arise and walk. And you know, I think where he wants you to walk, I think he wants you to walk in his footsteps. I think he wants you to be like him. I think he wants you to worship him, and I think he wants you to be like the four friends that we saw earlier in the message, the four friends who are determined to get other people to Jesus. Whenever you speak to Jesus and you say to him, forgive me of my sins, he'll never turn you away. He never turned away anyone who was sick, and he certainly won't turn away anyone who's sick of sin. God forgives our sins. And so we trust him, and then we glorify God for what he's done in our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for this great promise that we have that Jesus Christ has the power to forgive sins. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who doesn't yet know the the power of forgiveness, the feeling of forgiveness, and, and knowing that their sins have been taken away from them in the blood of Jesus Christ, I pray that you would open that person's heart to the gospel. They would understand it. Your Holy Spirit would move upon them and show them that all they need do is call on your name and you will forgive them. So, Lord, we pray that you would do that. We pray that people will repent of their sins and turn to you in faith. And then, Lord, for members of our church, we just pray that each one would be a witness, that we would have determination, that we would want to get our friends to Jesus. And we ask you, Lord, to speak to our hearts today as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.